Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Dry, and today we have the pleasure to be talking with Maurice Crandall about his new book, These People Have Always Been a Republic, Indigenous Electorates in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, 1598-1912, to published in 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press. This history traces how the Hopis, Pueblos, Tohono O'thams, and Yaquis in the southwestern borderlands refused, incorporated, and adapted to political structures of successful colonial regimes from 1598 to 1912 as they sought to preserve their autonomy and eternal systems of governments over their land and people. Maurice Crandall, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. I wonder if you could start things off by telling us a little about yourself and your background as a scholar. Sure. Uh, So I am... First of all, I'm a citizen of the Yavapai Apache Nation of Camp Verde, Arizona. Um, We are uh, um, an indigenous nation that's relatively small. Uh, We have um, somewhere around, uh, actually, I'm I'm not sure the the population figures exactly right now. Um, They hover around 3,000 or so. Um, And, you know, it's it's a small group. Um, It's a... uh, relatively small community there in central Arizona. Um, and we are bicultural, so made up of Yavapais, who are, are human speakers, and then Apaches, um, who are Athabascan speakers. So not culturally related groups, but because of proximity and, and areas um, in which we uh, have resided since time immemorial, the, the, it ended up that the federal government um, put us on a, a, not a single reservation because we actually have several pieces of non-contiguous reservation land, but in a single um, tribal unit, let's say. Uh, and, and then we went through the Indian reorganization period in the 1930s. So that, that's my tribal background. Um, I, uh, I got my PhD at the University of New Mexico in history. Um, so I, I'm a trained as a historian. Um, I teach at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, in the Native American Studies program. Um, but I teach primarily history courses, uh, but we're an interdisciplinary program. So, th- so there's a lot of um, uh, working in collaboration with other um, scholars, indigenous scholars from different fields, uh, and, and working in a you know, in that, in that indis- interdisciplinary model, which is, it's nice, you know, to, to, have that experience of um, seeing other disciplines within Native American studies, you know, um, from science to philosophy to English and, and literature and, and history and all of this, how it comes together. That's been great. Um, and I've, uh, you know, a relatively new professor in, in terms of my, my time uh, as, a, as a professional scholar. Um, but, uh, you know, I have a passion for history, the history of indigenous peoples of, of my region, which is this, the, what we would call the American Southwest um, in New Mexico, Arizona, northern Mexico, that, that region around the U.S.-Mexico border as, it's, uh, as it is today. Uh, and um, so, that, that the, you know, those are where my passions are uh, in that, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a desert person. I, I love the, the Southwest and the, the heat. So living in New England is a little bit different for me, but um, that, that's what I do. Wonderful. Thank you. And you can really um, see the, the passion in this book. This is, um, you know, a remarkably ambitious book. Um, you know, as was mentioned, it looks at indigenous electorates over a 300 year period, three colonial regimes, four different uh, native nations, um, and so I wonder if you could um, speak to, you know, what you sought to accomplish with, with each of those different categories, um, uh, electorates over time, multiple colonial governments, and the comparative aspect of, of looking at different Native nations. Because I think really the sum is greater than the parts, but you've really taken on also uh, a lot of parts here. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what, you know, I'll kind of start by saying it's, it's funny that I 
I had to kind of trim this down even. I mean, I had initially um, envisioned this to be an even larger project, you know, going well into the, the 20th and, and potentially into the 21st century, you know, carrying it to contemporary times. Uh, but fortunately, I, I trimmed that down because that would have been even more um, difficult to manage. Uh, what I what I really wanted to do was show that um, a view of democracy, politics, um, voting, elections uh, within indigenous communities necessarily needs to go back a lot a lot further than um, has typically been done. Um, so, so when we talk about Native American voting, most people think of you know, elections within the U.S. system, um, you know, the, the native vote, you know, there, there are initiatives each election cycle to get native peoples to, to vote, to go to the polls, um, particularly in states where they make up a significant block of voters. Uh, and, and so sometimes our view of Native American voting can be um, a little bit narrow, and uh, that—that's how I always sort of understood it. Um, and I have, you know, my relatives have always been in tribal politics, and and so I, I was always familiar with and part of tribal elections, and and you know, knowing who's who's up for election for council for chair and all the various positions. And so I sort of had a view of um, electoral processes that was very U.S. centric. And as I as I got into this topic, um, I, I realized very quickly that it, it had to um, go back much further. It had to include um, previous systems of electoral politics in, in order to get a more realistic view. And you know, as you go back into the 19th century, into the 18th century, into the, the 17th, you realize that the history of indigenous voting in that region uh, that I focus on, it goes much, much further back uh, than, you know, the United States and, and electoral politics and, and, you know, constitutional amendments and voting rights acts. I mean, all those things are important, but the history of indigenous voting and, uh, and electorates goes back to the Spanish period, if we're talking about the colonial context. And so you really have to start with um, colonial mandates uh, during Spain, uh, during the, the period in which Spain was the colonizer in the, in the Southwest. Uh, and then you see how that influences future, future um, electoral developments within indigenous communities, that the, those influences are still felt very strongly in some of the communities that I look at um, and, and some of those um, political mandates are still in place in, in some form. Uh, and so, you know, the, the comparative aspect was to show, uh, look, this isn't a, this isn't a um, progressive narrative that we start with one colonial state and then we're moving up and we're moving up. And then finally we arrive at the United States where a combination of Supreme court decisions or, um, you know, lower court decisions in combination with congressional acts and, and things of that sort finally uh, enfranchise Native peoples. That it, it just does not work that way. If you look at the evidence and the, and the historical experiences of these communities, that Native peoples are enfranchised in a variety of ways uh, and experience voting uh, and enfranchisement. Uh, and in really sort of a roller coaster fashion, there are ebbs and flows, and there's much resistance. Um, there's accommodation, and then there's just um, uh, indigenizing of institutions uh, th throughout those colonial periods. Um, and so, I wanted to get that wide view to see how that worked over, um, you know, a, like you say, three centuries of history, um, and. You know, so, so doing that, it has to necessarily be both broad and deep. So it, at times, you know, the, the, the narrative is very specific and looks at, um, you know, very specific contexts with individuals and you see their actions. But then there, there is also a, a broader stroke um, in combination with that, with that very personal and small. Uh, and it's difficult to do. You know, it was hard. It was a, sort of a balancing act to, to cover 
a long period, but then also with the amount of detail, with the amount of stories and 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 about individuals and about communities um, uh, to to get the right uh, combination. So, you know, I tried. I think that in in places it was successful, and others maybe not. Um, no no book is perfect, but uh, that that was what I attempted to do. Um, and I I hope that my hope was always that people who read this do get that that larger sense uh, and see a larger sweep of history and and counter kind of hegemonic narratives that um, would privilege the United States um, as you know sort of the bastion of democracy uh, and the the colonial state that finally kind of lives up to the promise of enfranchising um, communities of color. And well, what I found through my research was that that was not the case. Um, and so that's what I hope, you know, really comes across in there. And that uh, Native people don't always want enfranchisement or civil rights, as we might call them, but they, they want different things at different times. What they want most of all is autonomy, sovereignty, you know, control of their own indigenous nations and communities. Um, thank you. And, you know, I think it's, it's, you really hits home, you know, you open the book with a brief discussion of U.S. Representative uh, Deb Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo people. And, um, you know, this tendency to potentially tell a triumphalist, you know, 20th century narrative of, of expanding civil rights and enfranchisement. But by taking the scope that you do, um, you really see a very, um, a very different story and the dangers um, of that um, colonial narrative. Um, you know, I want to talk about all of the, the different groups and their, their responses, but I wonder if you could start by um, giving us kind of an overview of the different colonial administrations. You know, all of them have the end goal of, of elimination, uh, but each of them kind of has a different strategy for pursuing it, and that provides opportunities for slippage between the intent of settler colonialism and its tangible outcomes. And so could you talk in somewhat general terms about the different colonial regimes, uh, Spanish, Mexican, and American? Uh, sure. So that we can kind of set the stage to talk about native responses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so S- Spain uh, has has a uh, um, you know a, a set of goals in in their uh, colonialism. I mean, certainly church and state go hand in hand, and we have any discussion of of colonial Spain, we need to think about. Um, both the Catholic Church and the the Spanish Crown, and uh, you see it in the documents often uh, referred to as the two sovereigns. And so, when um, representatives of both the Church and the and the Spanish state go into indigenous communities, they talk about how we, you know, we want to make you subjects of the the two sovereigns, which means you know, the the King of Spain and your Lord and King Jesus Christ, and. Um, so those two go hand in hand. I mean, that's important to uh, to s- start with that understanding. Um, the missions in the communities that I look at, the missions do a lot of the work of colonialism. They do a lot of the heavy lifting because um, where indigenous peoples are are more dispersed in um, communities that that cover a wide landscape. Uh, they need to be brought in and congregated in missions. And so that work occurs at, at the missions. Um, and, and often it's with the help, of course, of, of soldiers and representatives of the crown who, who help round up indigenous people and bring them into the missions. But at a place like the, uh, at places like the Pueblos in New Mexico, uh, there were already um, in, in some places very uh, concentrated communities where there were several hundred or, or even in the thousands of, of residents. And so, missionization was a little, you know, not to, I use easier in air quotes, if you could see my hand right now. Um, so the, the Spanish uh, crown has this, this goal of, of missionizing indigenous communities and eventually turning them into self-sustaining, uh, self-governing communities that would then become uh, Spanish citizens and hopefully pay taxes like other uh, um, communities of non-indigenous people uh, within the, the Spanish realm. Um, and missionization is supposed to be a short period to lead to that point. And, and 
Spain envisioned, you know, a 10-year period of missionization for communities, and then they could be transitioned into um, secular religious establishments and not missions with friars there who were were there permanently. Um, And when they did that, you know, they, they modeled these indigenous communities after Spanish towns so that they would have uh, governing officials like uh, a gobernador, um, a governor, and then you would have, you know, alcaldes and fiscales and a, a variety of uh, officials who would oversee the governance of those communities. But these would be uh, Indian officials. These would be indigenous peoples from those communities. And and Spain envisioned elections that would accomplish this. There would be an annual election of officials and people would actually go and into a community house and vote um, uh, for, for these people. And among all the communities that I look at, things pan out quite differently, and each one tailors that election to its own needs. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't look anything like what Spain envisioned, um, but there's a degree of sort of give and take and allowance um, that that uh, lets these communities sort of um, move forward in, in their own way. And so that, that Spanish period lasts for a long time, and missionization takes much longer. It just, you know, it, it it just keeps dragging on and on, whether they're Franciscan missions or Jesuit missions, uh, depending on the location, who's doing the missionizing, what what order of friars. You know, that period just keeps going and going and going. Um, and, uh, you know, well into the, the early part of the 19th century, um, leading into Mexican independence, you know, you still have mission establishments in these places. And, and Spain referred to these communities, these self-governing communities with councils of indigenous elected officials um, as Indian republics. So they were repúblicas de indios who had their officials and, and were, you know, kind of self-governing, um, but also semi-autonomous, semi-sovereign. They weren't, you know, fully sovereign in the sense that Spain didn't exercise any control there. Obviously, they exercised a lot of control and there was a lot of abuse of indigenous peoples, terrible abuse. Um, then Mexico becomes independent in 1821, and you have a transition um, where you know Mexico goes through a series of liberal reforms, and uh, it had been leading up to this point during the the twilight years of the uh, Spanish um, Empire in uh, this hemisphere, where uh, indigenous peoples could become citizens and, and would become citizens. Well, Mexico did away with that distinction um, and, and through a series of governing documents and constitutional reforms, it's, it's declared that indigenous peoples are citizens of the Republic of Mexico. And if, if citizens then entitled to vote and hold office and um, work at the same professions as anyone else, um, uh, and so you have this liberalizing spirit uh, within the Mexican Republic, but there are a few things going on under the surface. Um, there are those reformers who perhaps truly are motivated by sort of um, uh, the, the liberal spirit of the era, the, the revolutionary era, you know, where a lot of European states are going through revolutions in the in the latter part of the, the 18th century and into the 19th. Um, but then you you also have those who want to do away with any kind of distinction or protection that indigenous peoples might have had under Spanish law. So under Spanish law, Spain had recognized indigenous communities and their land, had granted to them portions of their own land, so land grants that were then protected from outsiders or um, at least theoretically protected from, you know, sale and and, um, alienation. Uh, and so uh, Mexico, you know, wants to do with those, do away with those distinctions so that then those lands become more open. Um, and uh, Mexico also do, institutes a system of um, what are called constitutional ayuntamientos, whereby municipalities combine both indigenous communities and non-indigenous neighboring communities into municipal bodies so that you could have mixed governing bodies, mixed councils um, with both indigenous people and non-indigenous people um, sitting together in those councils and making the governing decisions for those bodies. Um, and, you know, there were there were some officials me- during the Mexican era who certainly had their eye on indigenous land, who wanted to get their hands on that land. And for some um, places and, and, and areas, uh, the 
the idea wasn't that we will give indigenous people their you know rights under the the Mexican state. It was we will um, compel them and and give them obligations where they they have to become part of the the larger society. We want want them to incorporate. Uh, and so there's resistance from a lot of these communities that I look at, and you know they don't want to incorporate. They they had found a way to sort of coexist under that Spanish system, um, and but but a lot of the Spanish system persists, and you still have these governing officials during the Mexican period. So you have governors and and sheriffs and and um, lieutenant governors and and various officers. Um, so you have sort of almost like a dual system occurring where you have mixed municipal bodies, but then you still have um, indigenous governance in their communities. So Mexico isn't really able to do away fully with these um, Indian republics as they had been constituted under uh, the Spanish realm. Um, So this period is relatively brief, only a couple of decades until 1846 when the United States uh, comes in in a war of conquest and takes a huge portion of um, what's now the American Southwest. Uh, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, parts of California, Utah, Colorado, um, Texas, you know, all of this territory becomes part of the United States. And, and then the question becomes, okay, well, what, what now for all these indigenous communities under the treaty that ended the U.S.-Mexico War, the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, um, Mexican citizens could then become U.S. citizens. And well, indigenous peoples in that area had been citizens of the Republic of Mexico. And so by default, they then would become U.S. citizens. But then what actually happens on the ground there is is quite different. There are those who who don't think indigenous peoples there are ready for citizenship within the United States. Um, There's those who resist that. There are those who say, yes, make them citizens, because then whatever land protections there were previously, again, can, can be done away with. And this opens up uh, indigenous lands. Uh, and the U.S. territorial period during the second half of the 19th century and into the early 20th in Arizona and New Mexico uh, becomes a battleground over the political status of indigenous people. Um, and that's really a question that, hasn't, that hadn't been settled for the, the previous centuries. I mean, that was the thing that, that Spain was grappling with in Mexico. And so the United States is grappling with similar issues. But um, the U.S., their goal obviously becomes uh, assimilation and incorporation of indigenous people so that, um, like you said earlier, erasure is the ultimate goal. You know, assimilation is just another way of erasing uh, distinct indigenous cultures and and getting them out of the way, opening their lands um, for settlement, uh, for um, incorporation by by the uh, the nation state. Um, so that's that's kind of what happens there. Uh, it's a very broad summary of kind of the colonial programs. Um, but again, it's it's always dependent on the specific community because what they experience in um, pueblo communities in New Mexico is not necessarily what Yaqui communities in southern Arizona in the early part of the 20th century experience and and. So there's always variation and, and um, uh, kind of underscores that idea of there's never a one-size-fits-all uh, colonial program as much as colonial nation states, uh, colonizers want to have a one-size-fits-all um, uh, program. It, it, it never pans out that way. And each community resists or accommodates or blends and indigenizes in, it, in its own way. And it's, it's fascinating to see um, how that how that plays out in those various communities and the and the methods of resistance or accommodation that they that they incorporate um, and that's that's what drives the narrative of my book it's seeing these different groups and and putting them in conversation with each other um, so that you can see the variation in that comparative nature um, but then also um, seeing how they survive and how they persist and how they um, how they deal with uh, colonizers. Absolutely. And, you know, your book follows um, a periodization that kind of divides it by these different colonial regimes. But, you know, a theme that really comes out is the, the, the long internal political traditions of each of these groups and, and continuity uh, across multiple generations, in this case, centuries, um, as these politically astute communities uh, engage with different colonial regimes. And 
it seems as if there's kind of um, two, two ends of the spectrum. On one end, you have the Hopis, um, and on the other end, perhaps you have the Yaquis um, in terms of their, um, the degree to which they, they interact with the settler state um, in an attempt to, to maintain their autonomy. And so could you talk a little bit about um, the continuities in those approaches and how and why you think they respond so differently um, to these um, colonial regimes? Sure. Yeah. So, of course, I look at four different groups, um, and and even within those larger groups, you know, they break down significantly as well into to different communities. So it's hard to characterize them um, as you know four groups when there's so much variation. We're talking about if I say the pueblos of New Mexico, we're talking about what is today nineteen indigenous nations, but historically was scores of indigenous nations in New Mexico and, and through a process of, of you know, um, disruption and depopulation and, and you know, moving and migration of different groups, you have them coalescing into to the communities that there are today. And so I just want us to say that, first of all, that, that um, we're talking about many nations here, many, many nations uh, here. Uh, an infinity of nations, if we put it that way. Um, but kind of speaking broadly, uh, you have different approaches and you kind of, like you said, there's there some extremes there. Uh, Hopis in what's now Northern Arizona uh, are characterized by, um, at least within the, the colonial setting, uh, isolation. Um, Hopi is a series of mesas um, they are geographically sort of isolated from other communities. I mean, the nearest communities now are, are Zuni and, and it's within the larger Navajo nation. The Hopi reservation today is, is um, situated inside, um, surrounded by the Navajo nation. But historically, they're, they're isolated from colonial seats of power. And um, the, the Kingdom of New Mexico um, in the 17th century, let's say, uh, the, the colonial seat is in Santa Fe, which is quite a distance from the Hopi Mesas. And so for Spain to exercise any sort of uh, colonial dominion over Hopi is, is uh, a significant undertaking because it's so far and um, to get the people there, to get the manpower to really control those communities, it's quite difficult. Um, you have Hopi missionization in the 17th century for um, several decades, uh, but they're they're struggling because of that isolation and and not having the the manpower. And so you see this um, this interaction between Hopis and um, Franciscan missionaries there, uh, and things do not always go smoothly. The Franciscans, you know, are, are uh, as with any mission communities, are constantly frustrated by the the resistance shown um, by the Hopis who are living there, um, but they're trying to keep them under control and, and force, you know, Spanish norms of, of governance and, and religion and, and culture onto these people. Um, but Hopis are, are able to uh, just resist this uh, and, and remove that influence. You know, after the Pueblo Revolt in 1680, which, which in 1680, which Hopis are, are part of, um, Spain then tries to come back to the mesas uh, after they'd been expelled in, in 1680 uh, in the, the latter part of the 1690s and, and into 1700. And it, it looks like they're going to establish reestablish mission communities there, uh, but Hopis uh, beat them back and, and at the cost of violence against some of their own people uh, at, at a place like Awadavi. Um, but I think that it has to do not necessarily with, you know, I don't want to essentialize people and say, you know, they have this certain character, but, but um, a combination of the location, um, the difficulty in um, colonizing there um, that Hopis are able to um, beat back the forces of, of colonization. And after 1700, it's not until well into the second half of the, the 19th century that more, you know, missions and colonial establishments during the U.S. territorial period um, are set up at Hopi because Mexico doesn't really have a presence um, in Hopi territory, and the U.S. doesn't for quite a while either. Um, and and for you know a hundred plus years, 
neither does Spain um, in the second half of their um, their period of colonial dominion in, in New Mexico. And so um, Hopis are an interesting case there and and have resisted that ty- that colonization in, in a variety of ways. Um, then on the other extreme, you have Yaquis who are in what is t- today Sonora and along the Yaqui River. Um, they are missionized uh, in the in this the first half of the 17th century um, and through the Jesuit order and they set up these these missions there um, and those who are involved in this missionizing effort and the you know chronicling what has happened uh, there you know comment on how Yaquis come in and form these eight principal communities and 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 say you know it's remarkable how how easily they were reduced into these communities and, and they were anxious to have us there. Um, and Yaki's obviously are under, understanding this in, in different ways, in a variety of ways. Um, but they do coalesce around some of these larger communities uh, along the, the Rio Yaki and um, incorporate Spanish forms of governance, but also um, indigenize those so that there are, are very strong Yaki components as well. Um, but the, the mission establishments are there and, and Yaquis have um, these institutions of governance. They have their elections. Um, they have their officers. But they're always at odds with colonial Spain on the degree of control. And they, they sort of, um, if you were to summarize, you know, this, if, there, if there were some conversation that was had, it was Yaquis saying, you know, like, okay, we did these things. Now leave us to have the internal control that these institutions um, should allow. Uh, let us choose our elected officials. Let us govern our communities. And, and Spain, and in particular, the Jesuit um, friars who are there are, are very reluctant to do that. You know, they still want to have um, ultimate control over these things. And so they start meddling in elections. They start expelling officers. They start... Um, you know, not allowing Yaquis to work where they where they want to work, and so this begins a, a period in which Yaquis and colonial Spain, and then Mexico, uh, are frequently at war. And with Yaquis, um, there are many wars fought against uh, the colonial powers of of Spain and then Mexico, which. Uh, Ultimately, Mexico seeks um, extermination of Yaquis. I mean, they did, they just want to to get rid of them. And so there's a Yaqui diaspora where um, Yaquis move to different places and, and often have to hide their identity um, for fear of death. It's a, ver- a very real danger that they will be killed. Um, and so you have Yaqui communities in places like Hermosillo, and this is how Yaquis end up in, in southern Arizona. Um, in the, the latter part of the 19th and, and into the early 20th century. Uh, so Yaquis have this very different relationship, which is, it's ironic because they institute these um, changes and these forms of governance. And yet then they're the ones who are, are at war and, and it's characterized by so much violence um, against both Spain and Mexico. Um, so that that's something that's going on there. Uh, and then with the Pueblos of New Mexico, um, beginning in, in 1698, that's the, or 1598, that's the first permanent settlement uh, of New Mexico by, by settlers and, and representatives of Spain. Um, the Pueblos also have a, a history of, of violent encounters with these, these colonizers. And there, there are many abuses, but um, at the Pueblos, you see the establishment of these forms of governance with Spanish officials, um, and uh, the, the Pueblos indigenize a lot of these uh, institutions. And instead of an election uh, where, you know, uh, an, elect- an electorate of, of voters go and vote in the officials, you have uh, the choosing of officials by uh, religious leaders in that community who get together and have this discussion and choose who will be the Spanish officials for that year, the governor and lieutenant governor and and uh, fiscales and the other the other officers, um, and so you have an, that that indigenization uh, that's going on, and and that they they reach a, a way of sort of making that system work so that um, you retain the religious leadership of the pueblos, but then you also have um, the Spanish officials who provide um, the the front that interacts with 
the colonial nation state um, so that the, the traditions and the, the religious life of the community can still um, stay intact and sort of be protected with that, uh, with those Spanish officials um, interacting with, with uh, colonial authorities and religious authorities as well. Um, so that, that's, I mean, that's a kind of a summary of these groups. And so we've got Hopis I talked about, um, oh, and then, and then Ton Autumns. Uh, so in what is now Southern Arizona and Northern Sonora around that U S Mexico border, you have, um, this group of, of Autumn people. Um, and again, we're talking about various, uh, groups and I, I sort of concentrate on eventually what will become Ton Autumns in, in that region. Um, and, you know, they're sort of, a, um, in the middle between, uh, accommodation and, um, resistance and violence. Uh, they also incorporate these forms of, of electoral politics at, at the, their missions, but Spain always has trouble populating those missions with resident friars. And so you have extended periods where priests aren't there. And so these communities, um, are both, doing their own thing, but then also um, implementing some of those colonial mandates. Um, and that persists into um, beginning of the Mexican period, uh, where a lot of those missions are abandoned, um, essentially. And then the, the United States comes in there and has those same questions of, okay, what do we, what do, we do with these people? What's their political status? And there are some um, uh, designs at, at making them U.S. citizens uh, through processes like allotment and severalty. So this San Javier del Bach mission, um, which is a, is a reservation, a U.S. reservation, is then allotted, um, which would then entail citizenship um, through that allotment process through you know, the Dawes Act. Um, but it doesn't pan out like, like the United States has, in, has envisioned. And, um, you know, people living on individual allotments, you know, doesn't really equate and doesn't correspond with traditional life ways there. And so that path to citizenship doesn't pan out. Um, but that, that's kind of how these four groups uh, encounter um, uh, the, the colonial states and, and sort of a, a rough summary of how they interact with those colonial, colonial nation states. So it ranges from accommodation to violence, resistance, uh, through partial accommodation and just sort of only doing the, the bare minimum to sort of keep the, the colonizers at arm's length as much as possible. Um, but what you don't see is, um, what, what I didn't see really was we're going to, to do all the colonizer says so th- and play the colonizer's game because it'll work out in our favor. Um, you, you know, you don't see that in these communities. They are politically savvy. Um, they're saying, okay, what will benefit us materially, politically, um, and, and demonstrably, and what will not? And they learn, and they know, and they understand in these communities, look, this doesn't help us. This won't help us. And so that's why in a number of these communities in the 19th and 20th century, when the United States says, okay, now it's time for you to become citizens and, and become enfranchised. In a lot of these places, they say, no, we don't want that because through past experience, we know that this will not help us. We have done what we want to do. We've made the changes we want to make, but we want to retain our internal governments and, and citizenship and incorporation into the body politic of the United States in the early part of the 20th century isn't a, a good solution. And uh, I think a lot of these communities recognize that. Thank you for that uh, overview of, of all of them. And I think, you know, you, you describe um, indigenous history as a, a, quote, extraordinary confluence of stories. And I really think you see um, how, you know, these various colonial regimes, uh, you know, and these native communities, you know, come together, create new stories as these natives seek to uh, adapt, hybridize, um, resist in all of these um, different ways. And I, I wonder as you survey, you know, as you step back and look at this long history that you've outlined and you survey these various strategies used to challenge and subvert colonial power, um, you know, are there any lessons um, that can be learned, uh, you know, with regard to what engagement with the settler state can or cannot uh, accomplish? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think there are a lot of, a lot of important lessons. Um, 
one takeaway I would say, and this kind of uh, harkens back to my to my introduction in, in the book and that discussion, is that um, I think that it is very difficult to um, look to the nation state for sovereignty, right? So, I mean, sovereignty is inherent and indigenous nations by virtue of being nations have inherent sovereignty um, and uh, should have all of the autonomy um, and, and, you know, conceptions of, of rights of citizens, all those things, those are, those are within those indigenous nations. Um, and so it's, I guess the, the, what I'm getting at is it's difficult to, um, to then say, you know, we should be voting. We should be voting in people who then will help us secure our rights. You know, is, is the strategy instead to look to our own communities, focus inward, focus on sovereignty, um, make sovereignty, uh, uh, you know, operative and, and in action in all that we do. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult because, you know, you have a, a series of things like treaties and court decisions and congressional actions and all these things, which, which limit and define and seek to um, to dictate to tribal nations what their sovereignty entails and what it means, um, and so the the conundrum that I'm getting at, the ultimate conundrum is um, is sovereignty to be found within uh, the political institutions of the the settler colonial state? Um, I think the ultimate answer to that is no, it's it's not. Um, does that mean that that indigenous people shouldn't participate in electoral politics in the in you know the state or territory or nation um, within which they're situated more more broadly? Um, should we not vote in U.S. elections? Should we not participate in in Arizona elections or whatnot? Um, not necessarily, but I think that the the real lesson and the ultimate takeaway is that. Sovereignty, indigenous liberation, I don't think are ultimately to be found within those institutions. Um, because if they were, then that, uh, you know, triumphalist narrative would hold true, wouldn't it? Um, that through a series of court actions and, and, you know, civil rights struggles of indigenous people that we finally arrive at um, that, that promised land where we want to be. And I don't, I don't think that that's a reality. And so I'm not necessarily proposing an ultimate strategy, um, but I'm, I am questioning whether electoral politics and um, enfranchisement within the settler colonial state is the solution. And I think that that, that should come across in my book because um, all of these tribal nations are, you know, both, trying that method, but then resisting that method. And you see that different things work at different times. Um, but I guess beyond the book, I would, I would say that the ultimate lesson is how do we conceive of sovereignty? How do we fight for indigenous liberation? Um, is it through the political institutions like Congress and the, the, the Supreme court and those things, or is it, um, ultimately through our own indigenous nations and our own community building that we do. And I, I think it's, it's going to be more the latter. Um, I don't know exactly what that looks like. And, and I think that, you know, indigenous political theorists are envisioning what that future will be. And, and as we speak, and that's an exciting body of literature and the, those developments. Um, but, um, but that's not to say that, that other people who have different visions of how to accomplish and how to reach, true sovereignty and self-determination um, that their ideas are necessarily wrong. You know, some tribal nations are going to, to pursue it through economic activity, through wielding economic power, then uh, tribal nations can uh, exert the type of, of, of political power that they, that they want um, or through getting um, tribal indigenous people in 
seats of power within the United States or within the, the individual state um, that they can then uh, affect um, policy and 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 lawmaking. You know, many people see those as legitimate avenues, um, but but I would say that ultimately, again, we need to look to our own communities and try to put sovereignty into action, uh, and that you know, often leads to, to conflict and struggle, but, but that's what we need is indigenous liberation ultimately. And one tool that seems, um, to be used throughout the book, one theme is, is the idea of refusal. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, how you use that, that concept and, and how it shows up, um, in the book. Um, I'll just leave, leave it a general question like that. Yeah, sure. Um, Refusal as a, as a political tool, I think, is really important. Um, and there are indigenous roots to that. Um, it's funny, uh, and this isn't in my book, but if you look at, like, for example, the, the Indian Reorganization Act in the 1930s, when you know, Collier envisions um, tribal referenda that will uh, decide whether a tribe accepts um, reorganization or not. And in a lot of communities, the turnout is extremely low and you only have a handful of people go and maybe the majority does vote for reorganization and the United States, you know, the, the BIA considers not going and voting a vote in the affirmative when the reality is indigenous people for many indigenous communities and nations, um, non-participation means disapproval. It means not uh, approving of the the measure. And so it kind of harkens to this idea of um, refusal uh, that through not accepting, um, you know, the the, the quote unquote gifts of the colonizers and the rights of the colonizers and all of their institutions and all these things, you know, they always are making these promises when they come saying, we will guide you in the arts of civilization. We'll give you all of these wonderful things that we have. Um, and throughout, you just see indigenous refusal. Like, we don't want those things. Um, and sometimes it's it's explicit. Sometimes it's within the, like, for example, with the case of the Pueblos in the, the latter 19th and early 20th century, they clearly articulate this stance. We do not want to be citizens. We don't want citizenship uh, from the United States. Um, but in other places, it's it's not so explicit. It's just a, an act of, of not showing up. It's an act of not accepting. It's an act of not doing. Um, and that's, uh, that's a form of resistance. I mean, re- refusal is, a, is a, an indigenous strategy that, like I said, is rooted in that um, by not participating, by not going and being part of something, you are voicing your disapproval of it. Um, and so you see that in these indigenous communities uh, time and again. And um, I think that that characterizes one of the major themes of, of the book and of indigenous resistance to the settler colonial project. It's that, look, we don't want your, 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 ideas of civilization and citizenship and, and voting, um, they don't appeal to us. Uh, we have, um, forms of governance. We have what we need. And then sometimes, okay, well, we'll do the minimum. We'll do these things like you say, because we want to, again, keep you at arm's length and keep you away from our community so that we can be, um, uh, self-determining and, and sovereign as much as possible. Um, but, uh, colonial officials are, are often baffled by that, you know, like, I can't understand why uh, people are not flocking to the polls or why individuals aren't accepting their allotments and severalty. Why aren't, why aren't they going there and, and farming their land happily? We've extended to them all of these things. And the answer is, um, through refusal, they are voicing their own um, political autonomy, their faith in their own indigenous political institutions and, and life ways, really cultural norms. But you see that uh, in so many cases. And, and I always, always love seeing the, the statements by colonial officials who just, they just don't get it. They can't understand. Why wouldn't you want these things? And um, it's because 
the one, you know, the, the title of the book comes from Benavides, who says these these people have always been a republic. They've always had a government. They've always uh, seen to their needs. Um, you know, one person who at least in some way kind of understood um, indigenous communities have always had what they needed and wanted and um, and will you know, uh, make changes and incorporate different elements as they see fit, but they will always be indigenous nations, indigenous republics, indigenous, whatever you want to call it. Uh, hope that answers your question. Absolutely. Um, in the, in the introduction to the book, you, you talk about the power of stories, um, stories to help indigenous peoples make sense of, um, their existence, um, to counter and subvert, uh, hegemonic narratives. But I wonder, um, could you talk about, you know, your audience for this book, um, what you hope this story um, can add to the world, but also to historians of American Indian history or borderlands or American history more generally? How can they benefit uh, from from the perspective that you outline in this book and ideally go buy the book? Sure. Well, I would hope that uh, as wide a readership as possible would would read this. Um, that isn't just a you know, a handful of people and, and family members who buy it because they're excited that, it, you know, I wrote a book. Um, I, I would envision this being read by both uh, college students, graduate students, um, and and a, a broader public readership interested in um, the history of Indigenous peoples. And um, especially right now when we're, we're having these discussions about people of color and their place within, um, you know, the, the United States, um, uh, you know, the politics of inclusion and, and you know, what all of this means. Uh, the, I think that this is, this is the type of, of book that can help individuals understand the, the position and um, how indigenous communities see themselves within this broader landscape. Um, and how there's a long history of interaction with, with colonial states and that the United States is just sort of the newest kid on the block in that sense. Um, and that, that communities of color, but particularly indigenous communities, have been interacting and, and trying to make sense of this relationship for a long, long time. And so if we look at this political moment right now, um, with with George Floyd and, and African-American communities and then larger communities of color and indigenous communities, you know, what is this relationship? What does it mean? Um, and so I think that the book speaks to that. Um, I think that in, in particular, it, it will help with conceiving of what it means to live in a borderlands where, um, you know, borders are shifting the 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 position of the nation state um, is is always sort of tenuous um, and uh, that you know exerting colonial control is is very much sort of a give and take and indigenous communities are are doing as much dictating as they can of the terms of that relationship um, so that in in that southwest borderlands there um, you really see how indigenous communities can and do subvert colonial power and do, um, you know, in many ways, uh, um, exercise power over the colonizers, uh, to the point of outright revolt, you know, in New Mexico in the, in the, in, during the, the Rio Arriba revolt, you have indigenous peoples with, um, Nuevo Mexicano and Genisoro allies, killing the governor and establishing their own state. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's useful to help um, maybe people understand that power is always elusive, that it, that it's, it's, um, it's ephemeral, that it, that it comes and goes and that, that we can't conceive of these places as sites where power is held and exercised and, um, the settler state is always in control that that that's not the case and that it often happens sort of at the borders where um both um you know geopolitical borders but also boundaries of of culture of religion 
Um, all of these things are, are fluctuating and they're, they're, they're moving, they're in motion um, and, and they're ephemeral. I think that's the best way to, to describe the best word to describe them. I think that it's, it's useful to people who are trying to understand you know, what that means uh, in a borderlands setting. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's good on that, on that regard. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, I think the book is a, is a wonderful contribution and, and thank you for, for writing it. Can you talk a little bit um, as we close here about um, what you're working on now and, and where you're taking um, the work that you've previously done? Absolutely. The book that I wrote uh, was, like you said, is, is very broad and it covers a, a long both chronology and, and geography. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm transitioning to uh, a, a more um, concentrated uh, history and looking at a, a, a smaller area for a shorter duration. Um, a lot of historians kind of do the opposite. They write a, you know, the, the sort of very specific smaller history and then uh, go to something uh, more broad. And I'm maybe kind of inverting that. Um, but taking those concepts of, um, indigenous resistance and, and indigenous peoples and communities uh, trying and, and exercising sovereignty as much as possible. Um, I'm looking next, uh, I've already begun research and, and writing, uh, uh, looking at my own uh, people, looking at Yavapai and Dilje, Western Apache uh, peoples. And specifically, I'm looking at scouts. So it was common in during the, the you know the so-called Indian Wars in Arizona, the Apache Wars, uh, for Yavapai and Western Apache people, men, to engage in scouting, that it was a, an acceptable activity. And so they, they scouted for the U.S. Army against um, other indigenous groups. And so what I want to look at is after the, those so-called Indian Wars are finished, after you know reservations have been established in in Arizona, um, what former scouts do uh, in and for their communities, um, and this was inspired by looking at some of my own history. I've already been involved in some writing about Yavapai and and Yavapai Apache history, uh, and there there are certain themes that kept emerging when I was talking to community members and, and um, elders and, and looking at documents that certain names kept popping up and they were often people who had been scouts. They were men who had served as scouts for the, for the army. And <clears throat> what I've found is that they make an important contributions. Uh, they make an important contribution to their communities uh, because they have experience with the bureaucratic side of, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the, the U.S. Army and experience with, you know, the United States. And so they're able to use that knowledge just and leverage it in, in, um, the for the benefit of their communities. And uh, a lot of scouts receive uh, land bounties for their service. So they're given land that then uh, becomes part of the, the center of the what becomes a reservation uh, that happened in our in our my tribe um they also receive scout pensions which during the early part of the 20th century and it was a very difficult time and and we look at uh, population figures for indigenous communities are at their lowest and and um this is when that money and that land and that knowledge really um helps those communities survive and so you see scouts former scouts uh, doing a lot of this work and doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting and going to Washington, D.C. and um, interacting with the bureaucracy uh, because of that experience gained during the Indian Wars. So I'm not interested in the, the Indian Wars themselves. I'm not interested in the, you know, the battles and the fighting and all of that. What I'm interested in is after all of that's over, what do these individuals do? How do they benefit their communities? How do they use whatever experiences and knowledge that they've gained um, to then help these communities survive at a very, very difficult time during the, the reservation era. <clears throat> and I'm specifically looking at Yavapais and, and Dilje, Western Apaches, uh, who are, are my people. 
Wonderful. Well, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see um, how the themes and strategies that you explore at a, at a tribal level show up and play out at a at an individual level um, with that exploration. Yeah, um, great. Looking forward to it. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a good experience. I've enjoyed it. Maurice Crandall is a historian and professor of Native American studies at Dartmouth College. Uh, his new book is "These People Have Always Been a Republic." Indigenous Electorates in the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, 1598 to 1912, and it is available now from the University of North Carolina Press.